0: love in this passage. God loves you. God loves me. And I want to look at a couple of items tonight uh, uh, concerning God's love. I want to show you tonight that God's love is universal, that God's love is unconditional. And then I want to give you something practical tonight to do as a result of God's love that he has for you tonight. And I promise we won't be too long. My grandpa is sitting over there. He came in today to see us. He was telling me, I'm hungry. He was a little bit late. Um, He got stuck behind an accident as he was driving down here from Tennessee. And so he came late, didn't have a chance to eat. And he said, Brian, I'm hungry, so be quick. So I will be quick, I promise. And um, also, if you notice that, um, that there isn't that many people in here tonight, it's either because they heard that I was preaching or from where you're sitting, my six foot five, grandpa, you just can't see the rest of the people because of how tall he is. It's one of those two reasons. I think I want to go with the latter. But anyway, we'll continue. John three sixteen. the love of God. I want to tell you tonight that God's love is universal. It doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter where you come from. doesn't matter what you've done. God loves you tonight. And it seems pretty obvious. John 3, says, for God so loved the world. But I don't think I need to tell you that there's people tonight that would deny that. That would deny that God loves the entire world. And it's unfortunate. And in all honesty, I love theology. I love doctrine. I love talking about these things. I'm particularly interested in Calvinism because of the impact that it's had on history. But I'm not so much concerned about them. I'm probably not going to change their mind. I'm more concerned about the lost person that doesn't understand God's love. You see, for you and for me, if I was to ask you, does God love you? Of course he does. John 3.16. Each and every one of us. I have complete confidence we would all go to John 3.16. But as someone who's never heard it before, it's not at all unusual to believe that God doesn't love you. You see, I want to be careful saying this because usually universal claims are not true, but I think I can be pretty confident in saying this. Every religion in the world except Christianity emphasizes what you need to do to get to heaven. It emphasizes that you need to earn the love of that deity, it emphasizes that you need to work for salvation, but the Bible reveals something different. It reveals that God loves his creation, it reveals that God loves you, that God loves me, that he gave himself to die for you and me. It's very unique, and so it's not unusual for a lost person to not understand that God loves them, and that's who I'm mostly concerned about tonight, the person that may not know that God loves them, and I want to emphasize that point tonight, that God loves the world. And first off, I want you to look just at the illustration that Jesus used, the serpent in the wilderness. Remember that one time that the children of Israel murmured against God, that one time back in the Old Testament? I think I need to be a little bit more specific. They did it a lot. They were by a core. It was near Egypt that they were passing by, and they were circling in the wilderness, and they wandered around, and they wandered around, and they were passing near Egypt. And they became restless. The passage in Numbers 21 says that they were discouraged because of the way. It was a difficult journey. It was a mountain. Maybe it was the terrain was difficult. They were near Egypt. They were thinking of what they had in Egypt. And they began murmuring against the Lord. And the passage says that because of this, the Lord sent fiery serpents, venomous serpents, up on, among the camp. And many of the people started to die because of these serpents. And the people, as they always did, they would sin, and then God would judge them, and then they would repent. They repented, and they called to Moses, asked Moses to intercede to God for them. And God told Moses to make a brazen serpent. And Moses fashioned that brazen serpent, and he lifted it up in the midst of the camp so that anyone that looked towards the serpent would be saved from the venom of those serpents. And Jesus uses that illustration. Obviously, Nicodemus would know this story. He's a master of the law. He's memorized much more scripture than probably anyone in this room has. And he would know this story. And so he says uh, in verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Anyone in the camp of Israel that was infected by that venom from those serpents could look to that brazen serpent and be saved. And in that same way, just as that, uh, Jesus is telling Nicodemus here, so is also the Son of Man to our eternal condition. Anyone infected by sin can look to the cross and find salvation. And I think that that alone emphasizes the fact that God's love there is universal. Anyone that looked to the serpent would be saved. Anyone that looks to Christ will also be saved. Also want to emphasize uh, tonight, Romans 5.8 says, God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The proof that God loves us is in that he died for us. John 3.16, it even says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. His death is evidence of the fact that he loved us. He commended, he proved his love for us, and that while we are sinners. And I can hear the, the naysayers now saying, oh, Paul was elect, and he said, God commend us the love to us. Well, the elect ones, the chosen ones. Well, I'm not even going to go there. But here's the thing. Bear with me on this though. Can we agree that anyone Christ died for, he loves? Anyone Christ died for, he loves. Well, I want to give you a couple scriptures on that then tonight. 1 John 2.2, 2, it says, And he is the propitiation for our sins. He is the propitiation, the satisfactory payment, the substitute for. If, you're, if you have car payments that you have to make, the propitiation for those car payments is going to be a check or cash or, Lord forbid, a credit card or something along those lines. The propitiation for our sins, satisfactory payment for our sins, was made by Christ. Now, notice the way that he words it after this. And he's the propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, most oftentimes, Calvinists will say, whenever for God so loved the world, well, it's the world of the elect. Well, Christ died for all. He wants all to be saved. Well, it's all kinds of men or something like that. But the fact that he draws a delineation there, he just talks about us, our, he died for our sins, Christians, but also the sins of the whole world. That's pretty hard to wiggle out of. He loves the entire world. His love is universal. And we can quote scripture after scripture on this. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 says, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge, that if one died for all, then we all dead, and that he died for all. It's emphasized there. 1 Timothy 2, 6, Who gave himself a ransom for all, to be testified in due time. Notice also God's emphasis on the whole world throughout the entire Bible. Genesis chapter 12, where it all begins. I, I've said before that you could consider Genesis 12 as the first chapter of the Bible and the previous 11 chapters as the background information you need to know to understand the story. In Genesis chapter 12, God appears to Abraham and he gives him a promise. Mankind is in a pickle. They have messed up, they've sinned, and they are under condemnation. God makes a promise to Abraham and he says this, and I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. And we know that blessing would be Christ, who would come descended down from Abraham. Ezekiel 33 says, Say unto them as I liveth, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die? Isaiah 45:22. Look unto me, and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. Isaiah 55, 1. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. He calls everyone to come unto him. Malachi 1, 11, For from the rising of the sun, even into the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the heathen. God's purpose has always been global. Titus chapter uh, number 2 says, The grace of God the appears salvation hath appeared to all men. Revelation chapter 22 says, and the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him that hear us say, come, and let him that is a thirst, come, and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. God's love is universal. He loves everyone from all walks of life, from any, from any perspective. He loves everyone. And if he loves everyone, well, everyone includes you and me. He loves you this evening. I want you to also understand tonight, his love is unconditional. His love is unconditional. I want you to check out God's promise to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, when he made that promise and said, I would make thee a blessing, and I'll curse them that curseth thee. What did God command Abraham? He commanded him to get up, and he told him to leave his father, leave his kindred, leave his, leave his country, and he did some of those things. He brought Lot with him. He disobeyed God right off the bat. What did he do immediately after that? He lied to Pharaoh about uh, his, same chapter, he lied to Pharaoh about his wife being his sister. Um, God told him that he was going to have a son. What did he do? He committed adultery and he had Ishmael. He was not faithful to the promises, to the covenant that he had made with God. But the thing is, God was still faithful to the promise. Because God's love to him, God's promise to him was unconditional. It wasn't conditioned on what Abraham did. It was conditional on God's Faithfulness, And we see this emphasized in the New Testament as Paul teaches concerning Abraham. Um, Romans, uh, Romans chapter 4, God emphasizes that uh, uh, Abraham was justified not of his works, because Romans chapter 4 says Abraham would be in trouble if it was of his works, but it was of his faith. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Galatians chapter 3, God uh, is talking about Genesis chapter 12 and says that when God made this promise to Abraham, he foresaw that the Gentiles, through this promise, would eventually be blessed. The purpose of this blessing was for all the world, and it wasn't conditioned on Abraham's uh, faithfulness. It wasn't conditioned, it it isn't conditioned on our faithfulness. It's conditioned on God's faithfulness. Uh, Turn to Malachi chapter 1, if you will. We were here just a moment ago uh, for for verse 11, but I want to emphasize something else tonight. Malachi chapter 1. And it says... Malachi chapter 1, verse number 2. It says, I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob. And I hated Esau. And so some people will point to this passage and say, well, see, even in the Old Testament, we see God choosing Israel and rejecting others. Like, he's choosing. It's not, it's not, it's conditioned on things. But I'm here to tell you, it's not condition. God didn't choose Jacob because Jacob uh, deserved, when he refers to Jacob, he's referring to Israel as a whole. He chose Israel. He didn't choose Israel because they were righteous. He didn't choose Israel because they deserved salvation and others didn't. In fact, the purpose of Malachi chapter 1 is to rebuke them. You see, the children of Israel, their heart was not in serving the Lord at this time. And we find as we read the passage here that their that they were serving God, but their heart wasn't in it. They were just going, dotting their eyes, crossing their T's, doing what they were supposed to do. And God's rebuking them. They are not perfect. He didn't choose them because they were perfect. They weren't special just because of who they were. God chose them with the intention of blessing the entire world. As God told Abraham, I would, uh, that a blessing would come to all the world through him. We see this also in this passage in verse 11, the verse I read earlier. For from the rising of the sun even into the going down of the same, my name shall be great. Among the Gentiles, God's purpose was not to choose Israel just because they were good enough for salvation. He chose them because through them he wanted to bring salvation to the world. In Romans chapter 9, this passage is quoted by Paul and he emphasizes that no, it wasn't the fact that Jacob was special, it wasn't the fact that Israel deserved it. It was that God was merciful and it wasn't conditioned on their performance, but it was conditioned on God's faithfulness. He wanted to be a blessing to the whole world. Through Israel. God's love is not conditional. He loves you. His love is universal. He loves everybody. And and that means that He loves you. His love is unconditional. It means no matter what you've done or where you come from or how you've lived your life, He still loves you. It doesn't mean that He'll approve of it. It doesn't mean that you're okay living the way you want to live. But it means that God will love you nonetheless. And, And I want to branch off from this just a moment and emphasize another thing God's love for you is unconditional. I think we all understand in here tonight that salvation is unconditional on our performance. It's by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But sometimes we struggle with the fact that our assurance of salvation is also unconditional. We, I had a friend in college who, I don't want to exaggerate here, but I feel like I'm pretty accurate in saying he spent an accumulative total of several hours in the staff offices and talking to myself and talking to other, others, other of his friends about his assurance of salvation. He wasn't sure that he could be saved. In fact, turn to Hebrews chapter 10. He would go to this passage and he would point at it and say, see, I've messed up. I, I I can't be sure of my salvation. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. He says, for if we sin willfully, after that we've received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. And so he would look at this passage and he'd say, see, oh man i, I 've received the knowledge of the truth i know I know what 's right, and yet I willfully choose to save to, 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 I willfully choose to sin and so i 've forfeited my salvation it 's over i 'm done for but it 's not the case it 's not the case god 's uh, your assurance of salvation is unconditional he wants you to know that you can have eternal life. First John chapter 5 says, These things have I written to you that believe, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. 1, 1 John is written to Christians, and it starts off with the understanding that we will sin. It's talking to Christians, and he says, if we confess our sins. He's talking to Christians when he says that. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so when, when you look at a passage like this, context. Context is king when it comes to interpreting Scripture. Look at verse 19. It says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way. This passage is talking about the transition from the law to Jesus. And when he says in verse 26 that there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, he's saying if you are refusing to accept Jesus, as many of the Jews of the time did, they wanted to follow the law, they wanted to perform the sacrifices, that's what they wanted to trust in for salvation. And he says if you want to do that, it's done with. There remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. That's done away with. In fact, he says after that, and he says in verse number 28, he that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much or punishment suppose ye shall be thought worthy who hath trodden under foot the Son of God? And so the emphasis here isn't that if you sin then you've lost your salvation, that there's no more no more forgiveness for you. But he's saying that if you sin and you don't trust in Jesus, but you're trusting in the law, to find salvation, it's done with. It's null. It's void. It's pointless. It's not worth anything. You've got to place your faith and trust in Christ. And I want to emphasize something else tonight. I've got to go here. Uh, turn to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Second 2 Timothy chapter 2. It says in verse number 12 we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Well, that doesn't sound very comforting, does it? It kind of sounds right off the bat like, oh, man, if we deny him, he'll deny us. But I want you to check out the next verse. It says, if we believe not, yet he abideth faithful. He cannot deny himself. So in a sense, he's saying here that if it's up to us, then, yeah, if we deny him, then it's, it's done for. He'll deny us. But I want you to get our assurance is not conditional on you or on me, and I want to prove it real quick with another passage. Uh, you don't need to turn here but if you but if you will Ephesians chapter one, Ephesians chapter one, the Bible says here, Ephesians chapter one verse number twelve it says that we that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom also ye trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. And so remember 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, it says, He abideth faithful. If we believe not yet, He abideth faithful. He cannot deny Himself. And according to this passage, He says here that when you get saved, God gives you His Holy Spirit. It says that the, like we have not attained what He promised us. None of us have our glorified bodies. None of us are perfect. I think it's pretty evident when we look around. We're a little bit of a rough bunch still at least when our phys- as our physical bodies are concerned. But one day we'll receive our glorified bodies. We haven't received it yet. But the down payment, the earnest, the promise that we will receive it is the Holy Spirit. And he says that we will have the Holy Spirit, notice in verse number 14, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession. Until we receive what Christ has promised us, we will retain the Holy Spirit. And so, when it says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, if we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself, if it were possible for us to go to hell after we've been saved, the Holy Spirit would have to go with us because he's not going to renege on his promise. He's, going to get, he's given us the Holy Spirit, and we'll have him until we get to heaven, until we receive our glorified bodies. God loves us universally. Because he loves us universally, he, can, he loves each of us individually. And he loves us unconditionally. Our salvation is unconditional. Our assurance of salvation is unconditional. God loves you, and God loves me. I want to emphasize also, as a result of this, That God has given us something He requires us to do, and perhaps there might be a loose little bit of a connection. But I want you to turn to Matthew chapter twenty-two and see this. Matthew chapter twenty-two. Matthew chapter twenty-two. Verse number thirty-four. But when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, I love theology, I love doctrine, and I loved at Bible college all the late night debates we'd have uh, at college. But I'm going to tell you, there's a lot of dumb theological questions out there. <laughs> Did Adam have a belly button? Does it matter? No, it's like, well, who cares? Well, if there was belly buttons, then there would be imperfections. Just be quiet. No, no, no. This was a dumb theological question. You read the rabbinical writings of the era, and you'll find out that they, they, they love to debate just like people love to debate today. And one of those questions was, which was the greatest commandment of the law? And undoubtedly, whatever Jesus said, their intention was to give some argument for something else and to trip him up so that he would look bad in front of the people. But Jesus answered them, and his answer was undeniable. He said, Verse 37, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And so I talk about the love of God, but I also want to say that God has commanded you and he's commanded I to love as well. He's commanded us to love him, and he's commanded us to love his neighbor. Now, I want to ask you a question. Why do you suppose God would command us to love him? It kind of sounds, and I've heard people say, well, God's just a tyrant. He demands love. It sounds like something a tyrant would say, would it not? But it's not that God's a tyrant up there. He doesn't need our love. But here's the thing. He's the one who created us. He knows what's best for us. I, I, I've heard this illustration before. Perhaps you have as well. There was a man driving down the road in a brand new Model T and it broke down. He pulled over to the side of the road, and he's trying to fix it. This elderly gentleman, he drives by, and he pokes his head out and says, hey, do you need some help? I, I could help you with that. The man was a mechanic, so he said, no, nah, I, I got this. I don't need any help. And so the old man drives down the road, and the man is continuing to fix it for a long time. He can't fix it. The old man is coming back down the road again. He gets out and says, hey, get out of the way. I'll, let me fix it. And the mechanic's like, what could you possibly do? I'm like, mechanic. I can fix this, uh, but, but do your best. Fine, whatever. Mechanic, uh, the old man gets out. He... Fiddles with the engine a little bit, cranks it up, and it starts running immediately. Cannonick is dumbfounded. He's like, how did you do this? He says, it's simple. I designed the thing. God designed you and he designed I. And we could try to fix ourselves. We can try to satisfy ourselves by our own methods, our own philosophies, our own ideas. But it's not going to work. He created you and he created me. And he knows what's best. He created us in his image. And with this, he's a moral being. We're moral beings. He's just so that we have a sense of justice. And he's perfect in those things and we're not. But one of those things that he created us in his image is, is that we are beings of love. He created us to love him. And... That's why he commands it. It's not because he's a tyrant that needs our love and is trying to, deny, is, is, is trying to control us. It's for our own good. And notice also the passage that Jesus is quoting is from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all of thy might. And he goes on to say, And thou shalt teach thy children, and he goes on with that. But he says this right after giving the Ten Commandments. And I suppose the reason he ought to say that is because if the Ten Commandments, if the instruction in Scripture that has been given to us is just a list of things to you, if it's just a, oh man, I can't make idols, oh man, I can't say whatever I want to my parents, oh man, I can't kill people, like, that's, sometimes that's tragic. But if, if that is, if that's what, like, the Bible is to us, just a list of do's and don'ts, it's going to be really, really hard to follow those rules. But The thing is, if we love God, genuinely love God, it's not going to be hard to not make any idols. It's not going to be hard to put him above your phone. It's not going to be hard to put him above your hobbies if you genuinely love God. It's not going to be hard to put others above yourself if you genuinely love them. And so when God commands us to love him, it's for our own good. It's not for some dubious reason, as some might say. It's for our good. He knows what is best for us. I quote this passage all the time, and I'm afraid, I'm afraid of it becoming trite, but I need to remind myself that Scripture will never be trite. Psalm 37, where it says, Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass, and wither as the green herb. Uh, it, it, he says fret not thyself because of evildoers, because quite often we look at the things around us and we fret. We worry. We look at how this person is doing things, We look inward at the way our flesh wants to do things and we worry about those things. But the scripture says, don't worry about those things. They shall soon be cut down like the grass, withers, the green herbs. Those things aren't going to work. But he says instead, trust in the Lord and do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land and verily thou shalt be be fed. Delight thyself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. He loves you. Universally, He loves you unconditionally. He wants what is best for you. And in that, He's commanded you to love Him. Do you? Tonight. Think about it for a moment. And When we do the altar call here in just a moment, I want you to pray, whether it's at your seat or down here at the altar, and I want you to consider, do I love God? And if there's anything in your life that you would place above Him, you have to be honest with yourself and say, yeah, I could work on that just a little bit. Maybe you need to ask forgiveness for placing something above Him. Secondly, do you love your neighbor as yourself? It's not hard for me to love me. I love me. I, I love eating the things I like. I love doing the things I like. But you have to get outside yourself. You have to sacrifice something that you want in order to love others. The Bible says, No greater love than this, that man lay down his life for his friends. That's the ultimate sacrifice. But are you willing to make even just little sacrifices for others? putting others above yourself. The whole purpose of Philippians chapter 2 is what, Peter? I'm sorry I putting you on the spot, but you remember, you remember from Bible class the whole purpose of Philippians chapter 2 is let this, let this mind be in you. He didn't need the reminder except for the fact that I put him on the spot. Made straight A's on everything. Show off. But anyway, uh, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. The purpose of that passage is if God Almighty is willing to do that for you and for me, there is nothing that we ought not be willing to do for others. Jesus illustrated this when he washed the disciples' feet. And if he's God of the universe, is washing his disciples' feet, then you ought to be willing to do a whole manner of things. That, uh, that, uh, let this mind be in you. Be like your Savior in that. God's commanded us to love Him. He's commanded us to love others. And here in just a moment, when we come down to the altar, when we pray at our seats, I want you to consider well, do you love God? Do you love others? I want you to also consider tonight, I, I would think that there's a good majority of people in here that are saved. If there is not, don't feel ashamed to come forward. It's not, uh, all of us have to accept Christ at some point. And it's very possible. I remember uh, when I was at college, there was a staff member a staff member at the college that I worked at, a Christian college, a Baptist college, very, preaches very strong, uh, one of the pastoral staff there accepted Christ as a Savior. And if, if there's a pastor somewhere that we need to accept Christ as Savior, it's not at all shameful for a church member or for a teacher or for a Sunday school teacher to also have to accept Christ as Savior. So please, don't let that get in your way. And if you're struggling with your assurance, if you're not sure that you're saved, you're like, ah, I think so, I want to believe that, I, I kind of think so, but I'm just... I've got these passages in Scripture, like, like my friend from college that struggled with it, and I'm not 100% sure. I've just got some doubts. Please. this Pastor said, corner him We'll just corner Pastor about everything tonight. Go get her number, but also ask him about uh, how you can know. Like, what, what is your assurance based on? Come talk to me. We'd love to talk to you about it. Please. God wants you to know. First uh, John says again, These things I have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that you have eternal life. He doesn't want you to doubt. I can't imagine the anxiety and the fear that would be inside a person that isn't sure they're on their way to heaven. So please, please get that taken care of if you're not sure of it tonight. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you and praise you for your kindness to us. I thank you for allowing your word to be spoken and preached tonight. And uh, Lord, as the piano plays here in just a moment, I pray that... uh, if we need to get, take care of business tonight, and uh, pianist, if you know it and if you're prepared, would you play uh, Jesus Loves Me? If not, then anything will do. <laughs> but tonight, if you are examining your life and you think, you know, God loves me universally, God loves me unconditionally, I'm not, though, certain that I've completely lived by that. I'm not quite certain that I've obeyed the command to love my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I'm not sure that I'm loving my neighbor as I love myself. If you're not sure of that, or if you're not sure of your salvation, if you're not sure of your assurance of your salvation, then please, uh, whether it's in the seat down there or or down here at the altar, get that taken care of and pray pray to God about that. Come talk to someone afterward about that as well. Pastor. Go ahead and stand with me, and as the Lord has spoken to your heart, the altar is open, time of invitation.